Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review. This week, inflation, recession, the Federal Reserve, and all that, plus the state of free speech in America. I'm talking with Larry Summers, leading economist, former Treasury Secretary, and influential voice in the Democratic Party on what's next for the US and global economy. Is inflation close to being beaten? How much further will the Fed need to go to contain it? And will we manage to avoid a deep recession? Also, of course, Summers was once president of Harvard University. I'll be asking him of his concerns about the threats to free expression in American education and the growing danger of a lack of ideological and intellectual diversity on campus. Larry Summers joins me now. You're the first of my guests to come back for a repeat visit. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks for being here. Glad to be with you. When we spoke just under a year ago, you were saying then, as you had been saying for some time, that inflation was a much more serious threat to the U.S. economy and indeed to the global economy, particularly to the U.S. than uh, many people, both in the administration and in the Federal Reserve, had been saying. You'll have heard this many, many times by now. You were proved right. They were wrong, or you were at least much more right than they were. We did see inflation being far from transitory, and the Fed has been racing to catch up and raising interest rates very aggressively. In the last few weeks, I think it's fair to say, with evidence of some quite significant moderation in the rate of inflation, headline inflation and core inflation, and with continuing evidence that the economy remains relatively robust. We don't know yet the fourth quarter figures, but it looks like the fourth quarter 22 was reasonably solid for the US. The labor market remains pretty strong, unemployment rate down to a 50-year low, job growth continuing steadily. Markets certainly seem to be thinking, well, that elusive soft landing that the Fed's been trying for, that everybody thinks is often proved illusory, maybe we can actually pull it off this time. Maybe in the infamous words of the markets, this time is different. What's your sense? Do you think we can achieve a soft landing? Jerry, I've said many times that soft landings are the triumph of hope over experience, but sometimes hope does triumph over experience. So I think a fair-minded person would have to say that a soft landing looks more likely today than it looked three months ago. And I think that is in no small part a tribute to the fact that the Fed has moved substantially towards regaining credibility by moving very aggressively. And that the Fed has moved to an extent that Markets would have thought a year or a year and a half ago that the probability that they would move this far this fast was less than 1%. And so they've taken basically the path that was recommended by those of us who are most anxious about inflation. And I think they've regained a substantial credibility in that process. Where do we go from here? I think it's important to remember that there are a variety of components of inflation, not just food and energy, but used cars, hotels, airlines, a variety of components of inflation that have very substantial month-to-month flexibility. 
that those components all bounced up over the last two years. That's why we recorded 7 or 8% inflation when I never felt the underlying rate of inflation in the United States was more than five or five and a half, which seemed to me to be plenty problematic. If those components that rose very rapidly now return to their normal level, that will lead inflation to be below its underlying rate for some interval. And indeed, if rates were seven to eight and the underlying rate is four to five, you could easily see periods when the inflation rate was 2%. So I think it's a mistake to over-extrapolate from the relatively favorable inflation figures. I prefer to put a lot of emphasis on wage inflation in looking at this. I think of wage inflation as a kind of super core measure of inflation. And I'd have to say that wage inflation appears to be slowing a bit more than I would have expected with a labor market this tight, with a gap between vacancies and unemployment this tight. And if so, that is very encouraging about the prospects that somehow underlying inflation will come down without a substantial sacrifice in terms of lost output and reduced employment. I'm not prepared to predict that yet. I will be looking very, very closely at the employment cost index figure when it comes out at the end of January. But if we get a significantly encouraging employment cost index figure, I think that will be a basis for upgrading one's sense of optimism. I do think the Fed has to be very careful here not to stop treating the disease prematurely, because doing that is the best way to cause it to come back and come back in a more virulent form. I want to come on to the Fed in specifically in detail, but let me pick you up on that labor market issue. What's your best explanation for why the labor market is behaving as it is? It does seem that workers, as you said, there's been a moderation in wage increases. They remain quite significantly below price inflation. Workers in this position seem to be accepting real wage declines, even as you say, as the labor market remains historically tight by any of the measures that we have, including, with, as I just said, with an unemployment rate at a 50-year low. Is this just phrases like money illusion, workers somehow, are we storing up a stronger wage demands for the future? I mean, your lifetime of economic research, particularly in this area of labor economics, what's going on? Well, first of all, I think at the moment, they're seeing real wage increases. Because at the moment, the CPI is running well below the rate of wage growth. And I think that's part of the story. Why people have not escalated their wage demands. I think that's one part of the answer. I think another part of the answer is, and the worrying part of the answer is that there is a fair amount of sluggishness in wages and employers do signing bonuses, employers do loyalty bonuses, employers do a lot of things before they move to across the board wage increases. And I think the ground for concern is that they're running out of the ability to do those things. And that may mean substantial wage pressure going forward. So I think it is a fair question. I think it may be if it turns out that wage inflation is slowing, that 
some of the substantial increase in wage inflation that we saw after COVID may have been in the nature of a one-time adjustment. I also think it's hard to measure wages right now. A lot of people are working at home. And when we say wages, often that's how much somebody got paid for a week Mm. divided by how many hours they worked. Well, People may not be working quite as many hours relative to the number of hours they say they're working, and they may not be working quite as hard when they're out of the office. So I also wonder whether the wage inflation numbers that we measure are quite representative of actual wage inflation. And that is supported by the fact that the productivity statistics have not been very strong right. for the last several years, last few quarters. Is it also possible that maybe, you know, we've seen a significant amount of excess savings, say the savings rate increased obviously dramatically during the pandemic. We saw these big, big government support programs. I was talking to a senior banker who said there's still quite a lot of cash in people's accounts. Are they maybe offsetting maybe a slightly lower than they might expect to get their wage increase by drawing down more on their savings? Is that possible? I think that's possible as well, but people always want more. So even if they have savings, if their employer would really be able to give them more, I'm not sure why they wouldn't bargain for more and threaten to quit more in a tight labor market. So I think I'm probably a little more skeptical of the savings hypothesis, but that would certainly be one possible explanation. We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll be talking more about the outlook for the economy with Larry Summers, but also about the condition of American education, the troubling decline in free speech and genuine diversity of opinion among professors and students alike. Stay with us. Rapid expansion. We're ready. Worker shortage. We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm talking with Larry Summers about the state of the economy, and I'll also be asking him about the state of free speech at American universities. Let's move on to the Fed. Now, there's a misalignment right now between markets' expectations and the Fed's own expectations, as demonstrated in the FOMC for the Federal Open Market Committee members' economic forecasts. The Fed expects to push up rates in the current round about just under four and a half to, to five, maybe a little bit higher in the course of the next few months, and then pretty well to stay there. Markets, I think, probably obviously expecting a sharp economic slowdown and the usual kind of Fed response function are expecting rates to come down quite quickly, that we'll reach the peak of the Fed funds rate and then get over the hill and come down quite quickly, whereas the Fed expects more of a plateau. Who's right, in your view? I don't have a strong view. I don't think that if I was the Fed, I would be working quite as hard as the Fed seems to be to convince people that for sure there won't be reductions in the second half of the year. The economy might go into recession, and if it does, it may well be appropriate to cut rates. So in general, I am not a big fan of forward guidance. My feeling about forward guidance when central banks give it is that the market doesn't believe it that much, so it doesn't actually influence economic behavior that much. But the central bank takes it very seriously down the road in terms of preserving credibility. 
So I think forward guidance has a tendency to constrain future action to very little benefit at the time when it is given. So I think if I were the Fed and I wanted to signal more determination, I might move a little more strongly in the short term and leave a little more open the question of how I was going to adjust monetary policy down the road. I mean, this is maybe a little unfair on the Fed, but are we seeing possibly a kind of Fed funds premium as a result of the damage to the Fed's credibility over the last couple of years, that that explains that? The Fed is having to, as you say, reinforce its message that, no, no, we're for real, we're going to inflict pain on the economy to keep it there, primarily because they lost so much credibility on the other side. I think there's an element of snapback in Fed behavior. Certainly, I think the idea that people at the Fed want to be remembered as Paul Volcker and his colleagues, rather than as Arthur Burns and his colleagues, is a very, very important aspect at the Fed. Let's talk about the longer term economic picture and some of the structural issues. Now, you know, you wrote a lot and were very much um, advocate of the theory, an old theory, but one which you were very much associated with reviving. What we saw, we were seeing that period from, especially in the 2010s, you know, actually by going back to 2000, throughout the first 20 years of the 21st century, what you talk about secular stagnation, that we were seeing in a, in a, an insufficiency of demand in the economy and that we needed to do much more to generate demand. And that's why we had this extraordinary period of low interest rates and relatively low growth. And, you know, a lot of people agreed with you, but there were certainly, without any question, that financial conditions generally certainly suggested something unusual was happening. Do you think the pandemic and the period that's followed the pandemic is a kind of a brief interruption from that phase of economic history? Or do you think we've now passed a kind of a turning point and that we're into maybe some broader, different structural conditions in the economy? I think that's the central question for financial markets, Jerry, and I think you posed it very well. And I go back and forth as to the answer. On the side of it's a brief interval and we will go back to secular stagnation, you have the observations that the fundamental forces of lower-priced capital goods, demography, increase inequality, more investment in intangible things are still very much operative and to inhibit demand. On the other side, you have the fact that we have accumulated and will accumulate substantially more government debt than we had before we will run substantially larger budget deficits in this decade than we did during the decade of the noughts. And the investment program that has been laid out, both to meet green challenges and to meet resilience, if you need to build two of everything, and then you're investing more. All of those things, the deficits, the green investment, the resilience investment, the increased debt, those things all point towards higher real rates and away from secular stagnation. And I don't think anybody can know which of those views is right. And there may be elements of truth in both of them. I think my guess is we're not going to go all the way back to the period of secular stagnation that we had. It's interesting to study history. People thought we had secular stagnation in the late 1930s. Then we had World War II, which blew that out of the water because we had such massive fiscal stimulus. The general view of 
leading economists in 1943 or 1944 was that it would be back to secular stagnation after World War II. Mm -hmm. And that turned out not to be the case Mm -hmm. at all. So I could go either way on it. I think my best guess is it will not be secular stagnation as virulent as the secular stagnation we suffered. One of the factors that people cite to say that we might be entering a new era of economic development, which is particularly interesting to get your views on this, because you were deputy treasury and then you were treasury secretary in the Clinton administration, very much at that time when this period of globalization was really not beginning, but really taking off. We were seeing China emerge dramatically in the 1990s into the world economy, entered the WTO when you were at the treasury. There was a lot of optimism that we'd entered a period in which international trade flows, international capital flows, even migration was expanding. This were lowering costs. It was producing all kinds of benefits for the global economy. We have obviously seen, and again, this could be short-term factors. We've seen a political backlash to some extent against globalization, which is taking effect. We've seen geopolitical tensions, which are to some extent reversing or stalling globalization. We've seen supply chain concerns, companies reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, whatever you want to call it. And we've seen, again, this sort of broader geopolitical risk. Do you think that that phase in which, you know, we, I mean, you can measure it in the numbers. We saw the, the proportion of global GDP accounted for by trade and capital flows, things like that. Is that at an end? Or again, is it too early to say? It's surely too early to say there clearly will be changes that will come from globalization. My suspicion is that barring geopolitical catastrophe, which certainly is conceivable, but is not what I would expect. I think that globalization will progress. I think resilience needs will be met with increased diversification of supply chains. And that increased diversification may in many cases mean more globalization rather than less. I think technology is really transformative. It was not that many years ago when I would think to myself consciously, I'm making an international phone call now. That's not something that even occurs to me now. It was only five years ago that it would have been a novelty to engage in a video conference with someone who was located in another country. So I think that the technology and the technology's way of opening things up is going to be very, very important in terms of what happens to globalization. And my sense is that the core dynamic where people in one country are going to have their lives ever more affected by things that happen outside their country, I think that's something that's likely to continue, barring, again, geopolitical catastrophe. Trump came in, obviously, Six years ago, we had this very robust approach towards China, imposed tariffs uh, on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We didn't think it was a very good idea, and it didn't turn out to be a particularly good idea, but took a very much more robust approach. But it does seem as the Biden administration, some of the tariffs remain in place. President Biden still got to decide whether to remove those, but has also taken a pretty tough line with China economically, particularly in the field of technology and transfer. We've seen you know, significant new restrictions on transfer of technology and on imports of technology. Again, given the way the administration has to weigh the geopolitical challenge that China obviously represents, nobody would really deny that. Weighing that against the kind of economic virtues of economic integration and globalization we've talked about, do you think they're getting that balance right? It's very difficult to judge national security balances without classified information of a kind that I don't have. 
I think the right principle is that we obviously need to protect our national security where sensitive technologies are involved. And I think that's got to be something that a serious country like ourselves does. I worry when we extend the set of technologies in which we need to have leadership towards various green technologies, which aren't much related to military hardware. I worry when we extend it in other directions that isn't centrally related to our national security, because I think for us to run a policy that appears to be suppressing China economically would really be quite dangerous. And I think we need to define a policy, I've called it calibrated integration, that does restrict things for our national security but which needs to be presented in a way where there's no sense that it's our economic objective to hold down China rather than to allow China to define its own greatness, but to do so in ways that have appropriate safeguards. While we're on the topic of China, how do you see China's economy? Obviously, it's been, again, a very turbulent couple of years. They had the zero COVID policy, which obviously led to a significant slowdown. They lifted the zero COVID policy just a couple of months ago. We don't really know yet the consequences of that. We did have some interesting GDP figures just released. But then they faced these larger structural issues of a developing economy, more consumer-led growth, clearly structural factors leading to what seems to be a secular slowdown in growth potential. And, And then there's the whole issue of excesses in the financial sector, particularly in real estate. There's been Xi Jinping's turn away from the kind of liberalizing approach that his predecessors had taken. A few years ago, everybody seemed to be convinced that China was on a path to overtake the United States, not just obviously in total nominal GDP, but even maybe ultimately in GDP per head. Where's the Chinese economy heading? And it's obviously so important for the rest of the world because it's been such an important contributor to growth of the world in the last 20 years. Short term, I think the experience of countries is that when they put COVID in the rear view mirror, there's a big growth spurt. And I think that China is going to get there pretty quickly, probably by the end of the first quarter. So I'd be looking for a pretty rapid phase of recovery growth in China. Medium term, I put substantial weight, no one can know for sure, on the possibility that China will look in history as Russia did in 1960 or as Japan did in 1990 an economy that has recently grown quite rapidly, an economy that puts a lot of emphasis on discipline and central direction, an economy with a very high capital investment rate, an economy with less emphasis on consumption and more emphasis on production, with emphasis on manufacturing production. But the growth process in both Russia and Japan ran out of gas in a certain sense, despite the enormous technological achievements that caused America to be quite fearful of Russia in 1990 and Russia in 1960 and Japan in 1990. And my instinct is that some of that is what we're going to see with respect to China. Finally, Larry, shift of gears away from the pure topic of applied economics as we've been discussing it here 
to a topic that I know concerns you. You're concerned about you're an academic. You were president of Harvard University. You remain a professor, obviously, at Harvard University. There is clearly a kind of an intellectual ferment going on in higher education that we've seen steadily over a long period, over a generation or so, but which does seem to be accelerating in the last few years, a tendency towards the discouragement, shall we say, of dissenting views from what might be called a kind of progressive orthodoxy. People talk about cancel culture. It's a bit of an overused cliche. But the condition of many universities, including including some of our finest universities, both in the United States and in the UK, does seem to be fostering a climate of restrictions on free speech and on free expression for academics. Is that overdone? Is that something that we on the right go overboard about? Or is it someone from you, from a democratic, from a progressive democratic perspective? Is that something that you think we should be worrying about? I think you on the right are highly selective in the way you frame the issue. Somehow when Governor DeSantis proposes to ban certain books from libraries or when proposes to outlaw the teaching of critical race theory approaches, you tend to remain silent. You don't seem to recall with any vividness that your ancestors were determined to purge those who had ever attended a communist rally from American universities in the 1950s. So I think it's a grave mistake to suppose that the desire to limit uncomfortable discourse is something that's felt only on the left. I think it is felt on the left and on the right. People on the right don't control universities, do they? Which is the primary channel in which ideas probably germinate in this country and around the world. What Governor DeSantis does is not going to have much In fairness, more students attend universities controlled by Governor DeSantis than attend... You know, Governor DeSantis can't tell tell the University of Florida what to do with its... Passes legislation talking about certain courses and certain kinds of curriculums are outlawed and more students attend the various Florida universities than attend the entirety of the... Ivy League. Do you think those state universities in Florida are teaching a kind of right-wing orthodox? Certainly in the high schools, and increasingly there is pressure on state universities. So I think we will all be better on this issue if we approach it not in terms of the content that we like or don't like, but in terms of principles of openness to even debate over ideas that we loathe. And I think there is a serious problem in a number of our elite universities of ruling out in various ways perspectives that are uncomfortable. I always said to students when I was president that if your education does not cause you a number of moments of acute discomfort, your education will have been a major failure. So I do think we should all stand up for the idea that universities should be places that revere thoughtful iconoclasm and vigorous debate, and that we'll probably be more successful in confronting these issues if we recognize that no perspective has a monopoly on sin or a monopoly on virtue. This is not necessarily a completely tightly related question, but do you think it's a problem that 
surveys, which are pretty reliable, show us again and again and again that in major universities, and by the way, this includes state universities as well as the major private universities, the vast number of academics, the vast preponderance of academics are self-identify as liberals, as progressives, and at the proportion who are conservatives is shrinking to a de minimis number. Now, that is not inconsistent with the notion that, that you would allow free speech, but is that a problem? Is the fact that we have such a heavy preponderance of people of a particular ideological disposition in charge of the teaching of our major universities. Is that in itself a problem? Jerry, I'd say three things about that. First, I think it matters what field you're talking about. I don't think it really matters at all whether a teacher of introductory physics is a progressive or a conservative, but I wouldn't say the same thing about history or economics. Second, I think it's important to understand what is probably the most important social process that produces that outcome. And it's this. If you like capitalism, there are a wide range of choices open to you, including going to work for all kinds of companies. If you are hostile to commerce and capitalism, you have a much narrower range of choices. And I think that helps to explain why journalists are also disproportionately true, um, very true, guilty as charged. Pro- progressive. So I think it would be a serious mistake to assume that this represents discrimination. But third, I do think that intellectual diversity is as important to the mission of higher education as demographic diversity and that it's appropriate to make more efforts in our major universities to promote intellectual diversity. And that's certainly something I tried to do during my time as president of Harvard. But I do think that it is a mistake to assume that If the world operates without discrimination, every category will be represented in every activity in proportion to its proportion in the population. And that certainly applies here as well. On that, I think we can agree. Larry Summers, thanks very much indeed for joining us on Free Expression. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression. Thanks for joining us. I'll be back next week with another exploration of one of the pressing topics facing our world. In the meantime, have a great week and goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.